expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Here we are, episode 145 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, your clickbait-free sanctuary in a world of nerd news. Yeah, man. Can you imagine, though, if, if we were okay, if we were to do a clickbait title for this episode, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Let me see. Let me think of what we're going to be doing for nerd news today. Oh, major DC character finally returning <laughs> after a long, long absence. Find out who it is. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Oh, man. This whole clickbait era that we're in in terms of, like, just news in general, just nerd news especially. Like, it's just – come on, man. Like, come on. I'm going it's- to sit here and say I don't care – what this person would look like as this superhero? Yeah, I don't. I don't care. I really don't care. I don't. It's also. I don't care if so and so says they want to do another Marvel movie because, of course, it's like saying, you know what? I don't want to work. Why would I want to work? Right. You know? Exactly. It makes zero sense. Of course, you want that Marvel money. Exactly. Or or certain actor responds to what other actor said about Marvel. It's like what? Who cares? Or Who this cares? actor responds to this other actor playing a character that that actor I mentioned before played. I mean, it did, I mean, and you and you say it out loud, and you understand how ridiculous it is. But right. this is what's happening. I mean, a there lot. was a story. I'm going to talk about this for a quick. Second. There was a story that said like Aquaman writer says that Aquaman's going to be like awesome and stuff right. like that. I'm like. <laughs> I'm like, What's okay, this gonna say? of course he's going to say it. What's yeah. he going to say? Like, it's going to suck? No. It was funny. I read one that said, uh, Justice League movie in trouble. And I'm like, I know this is clickbait. Yeah. But I have, to, I have to find out where this is going. And it was like, well, somebody's friend, quote unquote, in the business, told them that it's all over the place and there's all these problems and they don't know what to do. And I'm like, Really? And then you watch like, the IGN video where they're like, yeah, we went to the or ner- or the Nerdist video. And they're like, yeah, we actually visited the set for Justice League. And everything seemed in tip-top shape and it was all buttoned up and everything. But it's really so like, are who we, are you going to believe we, there? Yeah, are we believing the friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing? <laughs> right. it's, like, it's like we're finally – it's like, okay, we're finally getting some legitimate news here. You, you, you expect the nerd world to be your source for legitimate news for God's sakes. And now we can't even get it here. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just insane what pe- that's what happens, man. When you know you have ads and you need to get clicks to your website, uh, we haven't like, even talked about that. <laughs> that's the thing, man. That is the thing. It's it's this new thing of like we need ad revenue. How we do it? We need to get clicks, and because you know it's just it's, I should be able to read a story without a giant bag of Skittles flying at my face. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I and, should be able to do that. Yeah, I, I shouldn't have to try to find the X like it's a G spot. Yeah. It's 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 gotten to the point, man, where it's it's just gotten out of control, and you know everybody wants to make money. I get that. I'm not saying we're 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 not gonna do things to make money. All I'm saying is is that we're gonna make sure that it doesn't lessen your experience in any way if we ever do something like that, because it's not only is it obtrusive, but it's just 
it's overbearing at this point. You know what I well, mean? I think, well, I think by listening to our experience, we should at least tell them who we are so they know who they're listening to. That's right. I'm James with them alongside. The Merc with one arm, Nick Pataglia. And yeah, man, it's just going to be a fun, fun show. We're going to be talking about Emerald City. we got a bunch of nerd news to get to. But coming up next, we have two new comics to discuss this week. Find out what they are and what reading comes up next. Hey, this is Matt Hawkins. I'm a uh, writer primarily, but also the president of Top Cow. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we pull out our long boxes and discuss what we're reading this week. So, James, we all know that I'm a huge Power Rangers fan. Correct? Oh, yeah. Anybody that's listened to the show even once probably knows that. We also know that I'm a huge Justice League fan as well. So, of course, when I found out that DC Comics and Boom Studios are going to be doing a crossover of Justice League and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, I, of course, got excited. I knew immediately that I had to have the book in my hand. And, of course, that's what I did this week. I did Justice League Power Rangers number one, of course, from DC Comics. That's who it's released through, but it's also in collaboration with Boom Studios. Now it's written by Tom Taylor, and the art is done by Stephen Byrne. Now I'm going to talk about the art first before I dive into the story. The art, if you've read a lot of Boom's other Power Rangers comics, like Power Rangers Pink, which was also very good, or the main Power Rangers run, the art is kind of similar to what you see in those books, and it's really, really good, actually. Now, the story, I will say this. Now, a lot of people are probably thinking, oh, my God, Nick's reviewing another Power Rangers book. He probably loved it. Not so fast. The story deals with Angel Grove, and this is not a spoiler because it's literally the first page. Angel Grove is destroyed, and Zack is blaming himself for letting this happen. Wow. Now... Superman's there to console him, but then, of course, it's one of those books, like we see in a lot of television episodes, we see the damage done first, and then it dives into, like, 23 hours you know, earlier, you know, uh-huh. X amount of days earlier, and pretty much, the Rangers need to go on a recon mission because Alpha 5 is missing, and he's missing from the command center, Zack brings back Alpha 5, turns out it's not him, that allows a certain Power Rangers villain to make an appearance in the command center, which is pretty awesome, by the way, when you see what this person looks like and how this person is drawn. It's really, really awesome. And that allows Zach to say, okay, I need to get this person out of here. How can I do this? So he teleports you know, he, he to, to somewhere else. Turns out, for some odd reason, even though it's not really explained, he teleports to Gotham City. Yeah, kind of overshot that one, didn't he? And he sees, and the first person he encounters is Batman, of course. It's the whole, he doesn't know, he still thinks he's an Angel Grove, thinks Batman's one of the monsters and stuff like that. Now, I will say this. This is one of the things that kind of detracted me from the series a little bit, especially because I'm reading TMNT Justice League as well. In TMNT Justice League, and it seems any crossover that deals with the Justice League, the first character they always come across is Batman. And the way that Justice League Power Rangers set up is, I understand that they're in like this different dimension because they're in Gotham City and in the Justice League universe. But if they had done a different setting to where you can understand why Zack would maybe be more guarded when he comes into somebody from this dimension you know if they said it at like the uh, fortress of solitude and he came in contract with superman or one of the robots or whoever working inside the fortress of solitude you can understand the whole difference thing of like 
you're this monster and stuff like that. But when you see Batman, you're like, okay, it's a guy in a suit, obviously. He's not a monster. <laughs> right. You know, there, 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 but this book, it's not a bad book. It's just that there are certain things that happen in the book that are kind of like, if they had maybe instead of said it here, instead of there, maybe involved this person instead of that person, it would have been different. It would have felt a little bit different. Uh, overall, this is a book, I think, that really it's interesting how they're 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 trying to find a way to cross this over in a sense and yeah. overall i think that again this is a solid book it's just that there are certain times when i'm reading this and i'm like well maybe if they, again if they substitute this person for that they substitute the setting for that it would have felt different it would have felt like a one-shot thing where we're like okay they're gonna meet batman they're gonna fight and then something's gonna happen stuff like that now this is not a versus comic by any imagination this is one of those things where you know they're working together but it's, again one of those things where they don't know who each other is and stuff like that I'm interested to see where this goes. This was, this is not a pull for me. This is more of a, a pickup that just misses out on being a pull, simply because of again, they, there are certain directions they could have taken this first issue with that would have made it felt fresher and would have been different from different crossovers with Justice League that we've read before. But again, I think the art is solid from Stephen Byrne and. You know, Tom Taylor, I think, does a really good job writing this. It's just, again, the whole settings and characters thing. I want to see them mix it up a little bit differently going forward. Yeah, and I mean, I loved Tom Taylor's work in Injustice, so when I saw that he was attached to this project, I was really excited about it. But then I thought about it, and I'm like, you know, really, this is a tough sell for me. I mean, I, I know that you want to see two worlds that people love collide and see how the story would go. But like with Batman TMNT, you kind of see how that would make sense. Right. There's a couple other crawl like Green Lantern, Planet of the Apes. You kind of see how that would make sense or Star Trek, something like that. But then I saw this, I'm like, okay, cool. But how on earth are you going to do that? And I'm going to say this. There's the last panel. When you see what this last panel, I'll tell you this off air. But when you see what the last panel consists of, you're like, wow, it's really a book that's kind of out there because, again, you're dealing with Power Rangers, you're dealing with Justice League. But there are certain things, elements you see from Power Rangers within that Justice League universe, and you're like, wow, this is really weird. And I think it's more of just – it's not that it's bad and not yeah. that really it's out of place. It's just that it's an adjustment, you know I mean? I get what you're saying. So what did you do this week? I decided to go with an image comic to actually not coming out until January the 25th called Loose Ends, written by Jason Latour. Actually, this is Story By, which I think is an interesting way to put it. Uh, Chris Bruner does the art. Rico Renzi does the colors. Now, because it's not coming out for a couple weeks, obviously I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's, it's, it's going to be difficult for me to tell you a bunch of the stuff that happens in this book. This, so it focuses around a guy named Sonny. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Sonny. You, you see him in the beginning of this book, and, and I think it's in the, in the solicitations. If not, maybe this is a minor spoiler, uh, that he basically is running drugs out of Florida. So that's basically what he does. But there's something about Sonny's past that is making him take a little bit of a detour from that job that he has to do. And therein lies the problem when when he takes this detour which you kind of get the sense that he even doesn't feel like he should be taking but he needs to because of a certain reason that we find out later on in the book and often in these situations when you decide to deviate from the norm 
something happens and things go not necessarily the way you want them to go. And then you find yourself in a completely different scenario. But here's the thing about this book. I want to jump to the art for a second. The art is very gritty in this book. And there's at one point where there's a, a, a couple pages of a flashback scene that kind of sets the tone for who he is and what he does sort of thing. You know those, you're a film guy, so you remember those old 8mm cameras? They're probably older than you are, but I'm sure you've seen one. Yes. It's like the flashback scene was like watching footage from a camera like that, but in the actual viewfinder from the camera. Okay. That was the kind of, you know, quality of the video that looked like you were looking at. So I will say that that was very neat that it's like, okay, clearly this is a flashback and clear and and they want to try and give you a sense, but the the art in this book is is gritty and at times it makes you just feel dirty reading it. Not dirty in a sexual kind of way, but dirty <laughs> as in a wow, I am on, I am in a place that I would have to shower after I left, basically. And they're trying to sit, give you this setting here that this is not a nice place to be, really. This is not a place you would choose to stop. This is just the, the, the thing that they were doing here, and I think that that's why it's a story by Jason Latour, because clearly he kind of had a say in the art as well. It's like, this is these people's lives, whether they chose it for themselves or the fact that this is all they had. These are their lives, and this is a situation that they put themselves in. There's some bad people in this book that do some bad things, and the art hammers that home even more. And so, and I like that. And now I haven't read the book. From what you're saying, is I like it that in comics, when we say that, oh, this art style is gritty. You know, it doesn't mean it's bad. It just a lot of the times when you see a lot of gritty art, it's reflective of the characters who are in it, and it kind of they emit kind of that that style. You know, that that look of that world and the way the art is done. So it's not that it's bad. It's just that there, the art really, in a sense is a character in and of itself and really captures and brings out the characteristics of the characters in the book. It's a tongue twister in and of itself. Holy shit. And, and one of the things about it too is, is that, and I'm not in any way saying that this is a, a good thing or that this is the right thing to do, but people do it. It almost makes you, it, it would make someone prejudge a person. You know how people prejudge people just based on the way they look or yep. the way they dress stuff like that. It, the way the art is presented, it 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 almost makes you it, it's almost like they want you to prejudge this person or or certain people based on how it's drawn and I think that's brilliant if that's what they're doing. They're setting this tone about how well this person's a bad person and and this person's a really nasty person and I'm going to show you why and tell you why kind of thing. And there's a gut-wrenching thing that happens in this book, especially for one of the characters. And the way they bring it home in the art, it's like, wow. And when there's a fight, there's not, this is not a spoiler either, by the way. When there's fighting, there's fighting in this book. I mean, <laughs> they, they give you no, they, they leave no stun unturned as to what is happening to this person when there is a physical altercation. There was one thing, the ending kind of left me scratching my head, and I'll tell you this off the air as well. And I, I'm sure that it's for a reason. And I know because of one of the things that happened in the book that it's probably a reason. But at the same time, I'm going, that's an interesting place to leave it. And that's an interesting reaction to have. So it does make me want to keep reading. But at the same time, 
I can't make heads or tails of this book. And this is something that doesn't happen to me very often. But I'm reading this book and I get to the end and I'm like, this book either didn't really make a whole lot of sense mm-hmm. or it's brilliant and I can't figure out which it is yet. And I don't know if I'm not going to be able to figure it out until I read issue two. Yeah. Or if it's one of those things that's always going to keep me guessing. It's a four-part series, so obviously, you know, you better put your pedal on the gas here pretty soon. And you definitely find some stuff out, but there's still plenty of, like, you should have known a little bit more about the, about some of these people's lives before you sir, read this book. So a couple things, a couple characters in this book, you don't really care because you don't really know enough about them to care, I guess. Right. But at the same time, it's just such a gritty, nasty world that they're in. And I think that that's the point of the story. So I'm going to give this a pick up for that reason. I can't drop the book because I don't know if I'm if, – if that's if – do, if it doesn't make sense yet. And I can't give it a pull because I can't say, oh, that's what he was going for. But the intrigue alone definitely makes me want to keep reading it. And that's going to do it for what we're reading. But come next, we're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Fisk. Hey guys, this is Violet from The Flash, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, we are going to be going down the yellow brick road, or at least the yellow dusty road, whatever the way you want to call it, because Nick, Emerald City, another takeoff of the Wizard of Oz story, debuted on NBC this past week. And, I mean, it's either going to be those things or it's going to be Wicked Witch of the Good or Wicked Witch of the Bad. Or really a third, Wicked Witch of the Uninteresting. (laughs) I guess that could be one way to go. (laughs) Well, before, let me just dive into this real quick. The thing is, I will say this. Some of the changes they make in the in Emerald City from the regular Wizard of Oz, I liked. I liked the, what they did with the Yellow Brick Road. I liked what they did with the Yellow Brick Road. I liked uh, what they did with the Flying Monkeys, how they're drones now, which is pretty awesome. But other than that, this is just very bland of a show. It really, really is. And I want to start off really with the with the with the settings actually by the way spoiler filled before we go on any further this will be a spoiler filled review forgot to mention that at the beginning so just keep that in mind as we tread on here go ahead so when you when you think of wizard of oz when i think wizard of oz i think of color i think of brightness i think of okay it's there's some dark elements in there but really just the color just pops out at you this was very very void of color, which is kind of disappointing. Well, the thing that bugged me uh, beyond that, well, there was one thing that really bugged me that's probably not going to bug anybody else, but I'll talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, one of the things that bugged me was the the quote-unquote big bad of the show who we don't get to see is called The Beast Forever, and I'm like, are we really going to go beast thing again? Do we have to go? It seems like everybody goes there, you know? It's the beast. Oh, we have to fight the beast. We have to find the beast. We have to... I mean, come on, man. Can we think of another name for a big bad ever? I mean, at least when they did it in The Magicians, it worked. It made sense. And they made it a little bit different. But the, in this, it was like, well, what do you... We can't think of a name for the big bad. We don't want to reveal what it is. What should we call it? How about the beast forever right well that's and, what you're going to use forever because that's what anybody all, all anybody ever uses right and, and for people to who who again have not seen emerald city it's pretty much a modern reimagining of the stories that led to the wizard of oz and 
again, while I said I did like what they did with Yelbert Road, when they said, oh, it's opium and stuff like that. When and there's the thing that when she like picks up the the the, the opium road, pretty much what it is, I'm like, okay, is this gonna cause her to see the Tin Man, to see the Scarecrow and stuff like that? And then you see guy pretty much on uh, a cross, and he's got some bits of straw over him. I'm like, okay, that's gonna probably be the Scarecrow, that's which what it I is. Thought, yeah. And then oh, it's Pretty Boy McFuckboy. Like it's just <laughs> like seriously. Like, I am I am I am that and didn't come up with anything. Seriously, man. Like, I mean, his name's Lucas on the show. Well, that's what she well, names him anyway. Right. But my thing is this. Okay. I understand that these are stories that lead up to the Wizard of Oz. But come on, let's be serious. It's pretty much just Wizard of Oz. It's following the same tropes. Yeah, as this the was story. the Wizard of Oz, though. I mean, I don't okay. think it's a lead-up thing. I think this was. But the when Wizard you, there, there are different things that are very iconic in the Wizard of Oz. There's, of course, the color, the brightness of it all. And then there's, of course, the characters, the Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow. And to pretty much from what it looks like, you're replacing these these characters that stand out, they're iconic, with just regular-looking, good-looking people. And you're just like, this is bland. You're just devoid of anything, really. Well, it separates them from one another. I don't even think they gave us that though i think that they just gave us somebody that dorothy who's named dorothy gill on the show kind of comes across and it's like you think it's going to be the scarecrow and then it's really not the thing that kind of bugged me was the weird dynamic that they had this whole you know i think you're kind of hot dynamic was a little weird for me i guess maybe it's my own fault because i I think this is the scarecrow and this doesn't make sense to my brain somebody who you know grew up with wizard of oz and stuff like that so maybe that's my fault i don't know i just thought the dynamic was a little weird here's the other problem i had though before we before we go on okay i gotta get this out i know this is gonna sound crazy but there's a scene where they stop to get something to eat, okay? They's like, like, we got to find food. So they find food. Oh, yeah. So he's eating the apple, right? It's an apple. But then she takes the apple and she takes a bite out of it. And they're eating. I'm like, wait a second. You just met this guy five minutes ago. You pulled him off a cross, bloody with friggin' barbed wire on his arm. It's like, you know what? Let's split an apple. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> I'm not eating after this dude ever. I don't know what this guy has. Not to mention he had like mud and straw all over his mouth and face. And it's like this oh, guy's okay. probably got MRSA on his tongue or something. <laughs> and you're eating an apple with him. And not to mention, it's not like there was one apple. There was other food on the plate. What no, are you and, doing? And, and here's the thing. I will say this. Lucas is a scarecrow just because of how she found him. Oh, totally he straw yes, on him. Yes. Tip in this He's show, played idiot. by Jordan Laughrin, is a tin man because yeah. the tin man, what did he always need? He needed oil. Jordan, this one, needed medicine. So he always needs medicine or she always mm-hmm. needs medicine. So it's just one of those things where it's like they're these iconic characters, but you're changing so much about them to where, again, they come off as just uninteresting People. Well, and, I, think, and that's the thing. I think changing them you had to do because let's face it, they've tried the whole Wizard of Oz thing many times before and it just hasn't worked trying to stay true to what it is. So you're changing well, really, it. I get by, it. By changing it, they made them bland though. Well, they, I like what what they're doing with uh, Adria Ajorna, who plays Dorothy. I like her. 
I don't know why, though. So that's the problem? Is that, like, okay, I like her. I like her personality. I like where she's coming from. I think that they could have given us a little more about the family in the beginning. I mean, you had a two-part premiere. You don't really give us much other than that, you know, she's being taken care of by somebody who isn't her real mother. She's, you know, kind of obsessed with her mother even though she doesn't want to talk to her. I think they could have given us a little more there to give us a little bit more depth on her. But you're right. The whole Scarecrow thing, it's like, okay, is he Drax or not? Because you're kind of making him like Drax at one point. He's yeah. not funny. He's a little bland. There's something about him that we don't know. We find out a little bit more about that a little bit later on. But again, we don't get much on that either. So I understand what you're saying. But I will say that the dynamic with the witches, that I like. Yeah. And, and you get that's why we should turn to right now, of course, Vincent D'Onofrio plays the Wizard of Oz. And then you have these, these witches. And... There's a kind of like thing where they look at the wizard and like, wow, this is a guy who's really crazy and he's kind of, you know, in a sense kind of rules with an iron fist a little bit. You know, he's kind of a a dictator in a sense and they're looking at at, at that from their angle and it's really interesting. But then there was just certain aspects with the witches I didn't like. Like, okay, instead of ruby shoes, it's ruby gauntlets and I'm like, and the ruby gauntlets disappear and I'm like, it's just a lot of things in this were changed and some of it made sense, but there's just some things I think that didn't make sense at all in changing. Well, to, to me, I really liked the Wicked Witch of the West, which is Anna Ularu. I liked her. I liked the dynamic that she had with, the, with the, of course, the White Witch of the North. That was a good dynamic there where they kind of don't talk to each other. They kind of hate each other, but they need each other in this moment. The Wicked Witch of the East, though, they don't really give her much, do they? Well, I, mean, I, I know mean, that she's the one that's supposed to get... Often the but here's the anyway. thing, though. Here, okay, here's the thing. Okay, this is what this is a piece of dialogue that really stuck with me. Wicked Witch City says only a witch can kill a witch. What happens? She shoots herself in the head and she dies. Right. Which I gotta give him credit. She's a witch. She pulled the trigger. A witch can kill a witch. She was oh, one. Okay. She killed herself. That makes sense. So I, I actually kind of thought that that was that was a pretty interesting way to go. So I will give them credit for that, but. To me, and I'm not saying this because I thought she was a bad character. It's exactly the opposite. She felt so compelling to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought we could have gotten more there before they killed her. You have to kill her, okay? I get that. Without doing that, you're not really staying true to at least a core piece of the story. You have to kill her. I know IMDB says she's going to be in three episodes, so, you know, don't kill me for that. I haven't watched the whole show yet. I'm just talking about the premiere here. I just felt like you could have done... You could have given us a little bit more, maybe kill her at the end of the second part of the two-part premiere or something like that. Give me a little, give me more from her because she seemed like a pretty, I mean, did you feel the same way? Did you feel like they kind of killed her too soon? I liked her. No, I, the, my problem, dude, was that I got, I was so disinterested in this show. At first, at first I gave it a chance, but it was just, I felt there wasn't really a point that of the show that really grabbed me. That really made me say, wow, I need to watch this week in, week out. If we weren't reviewing this show, I probably wouldn't have gotten through a half hour of it. I would just turn it off. I will say this, that I I thought that there were parts of it that I'm like, I really like what they're doing here. And then there were other parts where like, I could do without that. So that's my problem. My problem going forward with this show is where's the focus going to be? And the dynamic between Dorothy's character and Lucas's character 
And maybe this is something I just need to get over again. Maybe it's, it is a legit problem. Their dynamic is just weird given who they're quote-unquote supposed to be. And the ending I thought was a little weird too. I'm like, that's an interesting curveball that I'm not sure makes sense right now. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm just thinking, okay, which lane are they picking? Like if they focus on the dynamic... If they focus more on the dynamic between the witches and the Wizard of Oz and this kind of like what appears to be an upcoming power struggle that's going to be happening there. And is the Wizard of Oz a con artist in this whole thing? And is he pulling the wool over the well, guys of the people kind of thing? Well, real, well, he is actually. I mean, if you read some of the stories right. like and, I have, he, he, he is. He's, he's, he's a magician. He's right. not you know a wizard at all. He's an illusionist. And we know that. But... Is that the route they're gonna take? Is what I'm saying. We know that from the the lore of the story, but is that something that they're gonna do? If they do, I'm more interested. If they don't, then I'm less interested. So this show to me, I didn't not like it. I didn't love it. But where they go in the next episode or two is gonna be very, very critical as to whether or not I'm gonna stick with it. A problem that, among the many problems I have with the show, I will say this again: the things I like about it are there's some changes they made with certain objects. I'll say like that, like the the Wayne monkeys are now drones and stuff like yep, that. That was cool. Th- those are cool. The way they did with the road, that was awesome. There's certain changes that they made, even some slight changes they made that I liked. But once, but the things I didn't like was I just felt that with the type of characters that you ha- when you think of Wizard of Oz, you have certain characters at your disposal, and then with the characters that we got in this premiere, I'm looking at them like, what really differentiates them from one another? Because the thing is, I'm looking at this like, okay, I'm flipping through the channels, and I see the show. If I stop midway through the show, if I catch it midway, I don't know what it's about, will I know what it is? To me, it just stood out like another, this is just another fantasy show, this is what it is. And it just, it didn't, again, it didn't really grab me But that's the thing, though. Much. Is it? Because it seems like I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you, but what I'm saying is, did you get a sense of fantasy? I didn't. No, that's the thing. That, I, that's why I meant to say. Like, I say fantasy because you're dealing with witches and wizards and whatever. But really, there was no moment of again. There, there was a moment like that where I'm like, oh, that's a pretty cool trick or whatever like that. There was no moment in this premiere that stuck out to me that, like, you know what? I'm going to come back and watch the next episode. This was just one of those premieres. And I think part was also because this didn't need to be an hour 21. I understand they wanted to probably piece two episodes together. But if you just made, like, a half-hour, 40-minute episode, that probably went better. And the thing that probably a lot of this has, especially with the characters, like, more like with Tip and Lucas... There wasn't a lot of exposition given to them, so you don't really understand what the fuck is going on. You know, it's just you. I, again, you see Lucas; he's covered in straw, and you're like, okay, that's a scarecrow, and he gets all washed up, and he's just a pretty boy. And you're like, well, what the fuck? You know, it's, huh. it's just. Here's my thing too: not to nitpick. What did she clean him with? Yeah. Was there a creek nearby that I missed? Did yeah. she have wet naps in her pocket? Because. Uh, he looked pretty gritty, especially in his face when she pulled him off there. So I'm not sure how he got clean to be cleaned up pretty boy. I must have missed that. Do I need to see him take a shower or something? No. 
but I at least need to, you know, give me the rag, like her dabbing him with the rag or something, like getting the last bit of grit off him, so at least I know, oh, there was water somewhere, she wiped his face, good. He's just, the next scene, he's cleaned up, and I'm like, okay, that's uh, that's an interesting way to go. But, I mean, I guess I understand why you needed to make it a two-part premiere, not just because it's Emerald City and you want all eyes on the screen because people love The Wizard of Oz. But the problem is is that you're doing what what a lot of other shows seem to do well, like Arrow, where you're taking something and you're trying to put it as based as much in real-life, modern-time reality as you can and make it feel more real and less fantasy. The problem is is when you're dealing with something like The Wizard of Oz – and you give us virtually no fantasy whatsoever, and you take a wow factor out of that. Other than the witch's ritual was the moat, which was the most magic slash fantasy that we got in this show. You gave us five minutes of that, and an hour and fifteen minutes of everything else. And unless that ratio at least starts to come be a little bit more even, I think they've got a problem. And that's the thing is you you touched on the whole real life aspect. Let me just tell you something. Real life is fucking boring, okay? It's fucking boring. And the thing is is that when if you find a way to make the Wizards of Oz boring, that's not good. Like I understand you want that sense of realism and stuff like that. But you have to understand though, you have to find a way to kind of balance that out and still make it give it that sense of wonder. And this they gave it no sense of wonder. Again, Vincent D'Onofrio, he's a great actor. He felt kind of odd in this to me, though. Just the way he was putting his lines out and everything else like that. I, I, it's just different, you know? It, it's it's weird. And I watched this show, this premiere, and again, nothing stuck out to me. I just watched this, and I'm just like, okay, where are they going to go with this next? But really, it was one of those things where I'm like, I'm not interested in where they go. You got to give me more. Is what I'm thinking. And and the reason that she has to go to see the wizard, to me, I, I get it. But I'm thinking, uh, would you go? Yeah. You know? Because they're basically saying, you have I to like- go see the wizard and atone for what you've done. Uh, no, I don't. Well, can he bring me home? Maybe. Really? Right. You're going to possibly go to be executed for a maybe you might go home? And like I said, the, the, what they do with the, with the munchkins, I like that. I like that they kind of made them these tribal people and stuff I liked, like that. Yeah, I like that too. I yeah, like that. that. Cool. But again, it was one of those things where I saw where they lived. I'm like, oh God, this is another show that's devoid of the color. It's, and it's just, it's just bland. And that's what it felt to me. So without further ado, let's give our ratings on this and you can go first. Alrighty. Well, like I said, I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. There were things about it that I did like, and I do hope that they focus on certain things. However, I know this is a Wizard of Oz story, so you've got to focus on Dorothy, and you got to focus on, what do we say, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, stuff like that, Toto. So I know that a lot of focus is going to be on that. You tried to give me something to care about with Lucas. I don't know if I care yet. Um, even when he was dying, I wasn't sure if I, if I cared, even though I you knew he wasn't going to die. Maybe that was the other problem. You know, he's not going to die. And they put him in a few situations where it looked like he might. So I don't know. I guess it's, it depends on how that group dynamic comes together. Cause it's a little weird for me right now. I want to see more focus on the witches. I want to see more of the wicked witch of the West. I want to see more of the white witch of the North. I want to see how the wizard of Oz plays into this. You've got to give me more of the mystical element. I know that everything's trying to be 
steeped in reality and and a little bit more modern and stuff like that, and you're trying to make it seem like it's more of a real-world thing, Wizard of Oz is not a real-world thing. You have to give us the fantasy. You don't have to overburden us with it, but give us what we're watching this show for. So I'm going to give this, as of now, this rating could change by next week. I'm going to give this six mechanical monkeys out of ten. I just want to quickly highlight what I liked about it. Again, I like what they did with the road. I like what they did with the monkeys. I like what they did with the munchkin people. There are certain parts of it that I liked that they did, but a lot of it fell on the fact they were too focused, I think, on the whole real-world aspect. And I involved what they did with Lucas and Tip and stuff and other characters we see. The, my thing is, this is a show on NBC, okay? You mentioned the magicians earlier. If sci-fi can have a show called The Magicians, they have so many wonderful effects and so many things that really capture you visually, and yet The Wizard of Oz, a show called Emerald City, cannot do that, that's a fucking problem to me. And the thing is, you're NBC. You should be able to say, you know what? This is Emerald City. We're going to throw in all this money to make these lavish sets. You can tell we're built and stuff like that. They're not digital. They're literally built sets. But we're, we, you can't spend money to make a Scarecrow costume or put some Scarecrow effects or Tin Man effects or line effects or anything like that. Like, you're so steeped in this reality that it really, to me, bogged everything down. And again, the whole being having little to no color in this show really, I think, hindered it. And it literally is one of those shows where, again, if I'm flipping through channels, I see this in the middle of the show and I'm, I stop. It just comes off as another random show in during times of wizarding and stuff like that, and wizardry and witchcraft and everything else like that. It just there's nothing in here that really grabbed me that made me say I need to go see this next episode. I'm gonna give this four out of ten opium roads. <laughs> yeah, and it was also pollen too, so I'm like, well, I'd get two feet down this road and die. Because yeah. there's no Claritin in Oz, so I'd be screwed. <laughs> Very much so. But come next, a certain spellcaster is back. And to James' excitement, he is really, really excited this person is back. We'll tell you who. Well, you probably know who it is, but we'll tell you who anyways. Come next in Nerd News. This is comic book artist Annie Wu, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's about that time. We go around the internet and we see what's trending because it's time for what, James? Nerd News! And just when we were getting ready to sit down and talk about this segment and just you know record and stuff like that, well, a certain story broke. And of course, Green Lantern's the movie, the part of the DCEU, has been pushed back a little bit. And ever since the title was released, we figured, okay, it's going to require all these Green Lanterns, right? Well, apparently now we know who's going to be writing it and what it's going to be detailing, James. Exactly. And uh, look who's back at the helm. It's David Goyer. He's going to have a little help from Justin Rhodes in writing the script according to Deadline for the Green Lantern Corps movie. And, Nick, now we know for sure, and DC Films has confirmed this, that it's going to be Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart. But not like we really expected. Yeah, it's going to involve, of course... Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart is going to be Lethal Weapon in Space, which is kind of interesting because you think 
Hal Jordan, you think John Stewart, you think they're kind of, in a really in a sense, more of the two more serious Green Lanterns. You would think, okay, if you're doing a lethal weapon, you'd probably do Kyle Rayner and John Stewart, you know? Yeah, and especially John Stewart's probably the most serious of all the Green Lanterns, I would think. I mean, I know Hal has that lighthearted side, you know. Depending on which Hal you're going to get, too, it depends on what's, what's Hal been through at the point where we're actually starting this Green Lantern core movie. So, I mean, I'll be honest. I don't hate the idea. It actually kind of makes sense. In it a, makes in a weird sense. Way. And I said Kyle Rayner actually meant Guy Gardner. If you're going to do a lethal weapon, you want to put Guy Gardner in there. Yeah, kind of that smart that. Yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. So Guy Gardner, you put Guy Gardner and John Stewart in there. I think that that would work. But I mean, I understand why you want to put Hal in there as well because I mean, it's Hal Jordan. He is the Green Lantern. You know, he's a Green Lantern a lot of people know most about outside John Stewart. I would put him actually second, then Kyle oh, Rayner right. third, and yeah. Guy Gardner fourth. But this is pretty interesting. Plus, what this brings out is, okay, so they do Green Lanterns, which is why I like because they might not be tied just to Jordan and Stewart. They might say, okay, we're going to do a Green Lanterns movie. The first one is going to be based on these two guys. The next one could be a Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where, you know, success breeds evolution in the film industry. So if this movie succeeds... The next Green Lantern movie is when you could see the Simon Baz, the Jessica Cruz, the Guy Gardner's, the Kyle Rayner's of the world. But this has to this has to work and this has to be successful financially anyway. And I mean, people are flipping out about the Goyer thing, man. Listen, we're going to be talking about Goyer here again in a couple seconds for another project. But you, you kind of get the sense that Warner Brothers and DC are having a lot of faith in Goyer now. And I'm starting to also think that Quite frankly, if you didn't like Suicide Squad, maybe these movies just aren't for you. Yeah, I think that, you know, Goyer has... Let me restart. I was was up. Yeah, I mean, Goyer has a certain way that he writes things and everything else. Again, we talk about this all the time. We like Suicide Squad. We like the direction it's going. The more I look at Goyer's stuff, the more I kind of realize, I'm like, well, I haven't really seen him really write anything that had to deal with space exploration and, and stuff like that. But if there's one thing, of course, in Suicide Squad was... There was just I felt the chemistry was there between the characters and just nonstop joking and just kind of one liners and they would work and bounce well off each other. So I think if you're doing a buddy cop movie, which is what Green Lanterns looks to be, I think having Goyer do this works really, really well. And you mentioned Goyer, and you also mentioned, you know, for a while, James, even last week we talked about uh hey, Jeff Johns teased guess what? We're coming up with a new DC television show and while it's not entirely on television in terms of a network, in terms of, you know, you can catch it on Monday nights at 8 p.m., Constantine is back, but he's back in a different way. Yeah, and I don't even care what way it is. He's back, and Matt Ryan is back as well. It's going to be an animated series on CWC, just like they do with Vixen. So what they're basically going to do, there's going to be about five or six 10-minute episodes. It's going to be sometime in the 2017-2018 TV season. So we're definitely going to have to wait just a little bit. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what they decide to do with this. Of course, it's going to be set in the Flash Arrow universe as well. So we could see little pop-ins like we see on Vixen. And I'm pretty sure we mentioned this as a possibility last week, did we not? Yeah. Yeah, I think we... I believe we did. And the thing is... You know, you look at something they did with CWC with Vixen. They made an animated show. They had, of course, Grant Gustin and Stephen Amell voice their characters in the show. And what happens? 
Season 2 of Legends of Tomorrow, Vixen is a main team member. So does this mean Constantine's going to get his little rollout with his animated series and then Season 6, Season 7 of Arrow, and the next season of Flash, we're going to see Constantine kind of be a little bit of a main cog in the, in the wheel, you know? Here's the other thing that we need to consider, too. At some point, one of these shows is going to go away. Not yeah. because it's going to get canceled because of bad ratings or anything like that, but eventually... The well's going to run dry, and it's going to ride off into the sunset, and that's okay. And maybe that's where Constantine fits in. Maybe they're waiting for that shoe to drop, and then you slide Constantine in there in that missing slot. I mean, Daniel Cerrone and David Goyer, who we were just talking about, are going to be back working on this as well. I mean, Goyer's going to be the executive producer for this. Of course, you know, Berlanti and and Chester are going to be involved in this as well. But, I mean, you've got the players there. It's almost like... You're in the bullpen warming up, and then you're waiting for Berlanti and Guggenheim to, to make the call sign, and here's going to be John floating in to the mound to come bring, the, bring this thing home. I just think that that is a distinct possibility. I mean, again, it has to be popular. People have to want to watch it. I mean, people can watch the original Constantine uh, live-action series right now in the CW Seed. So if you watch it enough, those possibilities are going to come in there. Right, and of course, you know, you had the whole petitioning thing and everything else that people did a while back. But, I mean, you look at what they're doing with this. It's a smart move. Again, this could lead to different branches. And plus, who knows, maybe this is also another way that you kind of said, you know, one of these live-action shows tends to go away for some odd reason or another. You have Constantine here who you can say, okay, we have this animated show. We can now bring him into full-on live-action if you want to to take up that time slot that was to replace that, the show that left. But I think that when you look at this, it's a smart move. I mean, you have the Justice League Dark movie that's getting ready to come out on DVD. So I think that this is really a sense. I think the movie for Justice League Dark, I think, helped catapult Constantine to the CW seed. I think that that was part of it, too. It's like, hey, let's keep this familiarity with this character around. So once the movie comes around, people aren't we're not going to have to reintroduce Constantine all over again. And I mean, it's pretty clear... That Warner Brothers slash DC loves Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan loves Constantine. This is a grouping that wants to happen. So I think that Matt Ryan, and he's doing other stuff. I know he's doing a drama series over in the UK right now. The name of it escapes me at the time. But this seems like one of those things where Matt Ryan wants to stick around and wait for this to happen. And I think that Warner Brothers isn't shutting the door on it entirely either. So why not? Arrow's on season six. We love Arrow. It's had a great resurrection so far this year in Season 5. It's really bounced back. But really, how much longer can it go? Let's say that even it gets a seventh season. Or maybe Season 6 is the last one. You've always got to line up your replacements. And CW is not just going to let this DC TV block go away when Arrow goes away. And they're not going to whittle the shows down by one by one. You're going to see stuff get replaced with other stuff. And that's where I think Constantine could fit in eventually. Well, speaking about things replacing other things, one thing, of course, that's replacing a very popular show that's had over, I believe, like 170 episodes. It ran for numerous years, was Charmed, which, of course, was on the CW, UPN, stuff like that, if you want to go to past networks. Same networks, just different name, pretty much. Well, it was announced uh, earlier this week that, guess what? We're doing a Charmed reboot. By I say we, I say CW, and it's going to be a prequel 
set in the 1970s, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, not only that, now if people are going, oh man, you know, I don't know if this is a good idea. Well, Jane the Virgin, who's, which has gotten a lot of critical acclaim and a lot of award nominations, the executive pr- producer for that, Jeannie Snyder Ehrman, is going to be involved in this reboot. So if that gives you, puts you at any ease, if you don't know anything about Jane the Virgin, I'm sure you know somebody that watches the show. Just ask them how what they think of it. So... It's funny because I always loved this show. I mean, not to mention two of my childhood crushes in one show, Shannon Doherty and Alyssa Milano. That didn't hurt your boy wanting to watch the show. Just happened to be a good show, though. That was the thing. It wasn't just that. It was a really good show. It had a lot of good stories to it. See, I loved watching Charm when I was, you know, I was was kind of, was I like a teenager? I was around a teenager when the show really first came out and, I had a huge crush on Alyssa Milano and Rose McGowan. I mean, oh my god. <laughs> well, I mean, Rose McGowan, yeah, that that didn't hurt when she ended up coming on the show after Shannon Doherty left either. And and I mean, you think about it, and and there's rumors that you know, of course, the original cast isn't going to be involved, but there's rumors that uh, on the unofficial information on this show so far that uh, McGowan's character has been mentioned. So I don't know if she's going to be involved. There's maybe a, maybe right. a younger version of her or something like that. But it looks like we are going to get an all-new cast here. Not just an all-new cast, but just from the reports that I have read about this, apparently they're not going to be tied to the sisters really in the original Charm series. It's going to be pretty much like an all-new, as you mentioned, an all-new cast, possibly just an all-new set of sisters and, just, and stuff like that, which, I mean, again, I think that in this type of universe – you know, with, with charm, you have all these magical creatures and beings and stuff like that. I think it'd be great to have that separation between the two, that not everybody is part of the same group. You know what I'm saying? I think it'd be, it'd be great, especially when you take a pl- place in the 70s. Like, seeing what witchcraft mm-hmm. and just stuff like that was like in the 70s, like how people's views towards that kind of stuff is. I mean, possibly we could, might see that. There are a lot of social things that happened in the 70s. So, you know, there are some some nice things that they can go, some nice roads they can go down with this prequel series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're talking about a post Vietnam War America, so I mean, there's there's a lot of things things there that you can do socially, and like you said, you know, what's weird in the '70s? You know, what's weird? Are, are the certain witchcraft are they going to have to hide it more? They're going to have to hide it less, kind of thing. How is it going to be used? And all you really need to do to tell good stories on the show is they've already established witchcraft exists. Once right. you do that, the stories that you can tell, you, the world is your oyster, man. You can do basically whatever you want to do with this show. And and what's funny is, is I don't think you have to completely reinvent the wheel here like they're doing with Riverdale uh, coming up on the CW with Archie, where they're just completely going, this is how we're going to do Archie. I don't think they're going to need to do that here. I think that you could go with almost the same tenor, just with different characters. Exactly. And, of course, our last story, James. You know, some people, when they have a lot of shit, they'll say, you know, i got to get a storage unit. I'll, you know, build onto my house, you know, build on an extension to put all my stuff in. But then if you're George Lucas, you're saying, you know what, fuck all that. I'm going to build a $1 billion museum of narrative art in Los Angeles. And that's what he's doing, because for months... It was being debated, are they going to put this museum for George Lucas, this Lucas Museum in Los Angeles, or are they going to put it in you know, Treasure Island, San Francisco, and they came out this week. Guess what? It's going to be Los Angeles. And I got to tell you, man, and this thing is going to be huge. It's going to be 275,000 square feet. It's going to have 
uh, different types of art. There's going to be some Star Wars stuff in there, but pretty much it's just going to be like George Lucas's just giant art collection in this huge place, which is awesome because in Los Angeles, you know, you have the new football stadium that's coming in, in Inglewood. They have numerous, they have numerous uh, of galleries and museums that have recently opened in the past few years as well in downtown Los Angeles. So, I mean, you, and plus you see the picture of what this museum's going to look like. It looks fucking awesome. Well, I mean, what else would you expect from George Lucas, right? I mean, he's going to go all in or all nothing. The problem is, is that I could see people flocking to this museum, walking in with one expectation and not getting everything that they think they're going to get. Like, it's just going to be this giant Star Wars homage kind of deal. And then it's... It's half that, but half not. And, of course, you know, you can't leave the museum without visiting the Jar Jar Wing. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can skip that. You can. You, you really can. Hey, maybe they might have a thing where you can, like, shoot paintballs at a Jar Jar statue or whatever. <laughs> like the zombie paintball stuff that yeah. they do around Halloween? Paintball Jar Jar? That would be an event worth going to. Yeah, but, I mean, again, you just look at what they want to do. And I think you, you hit something on the nail here is that when people see the – Lucas Museum, they think, oh, it's going to be a giant Star Wars exhibit and Indiana Jones, all this stuff. Again, while they are going to have the original Darth Vader helmet there, there's going to be a lot of art in there as well. So it's really a good cultural thing as well. And it's not just, I don't like that. It's not just going to be a giant Star Wars exhibit because, in a sense, I mean, that's what Disney's going to become when Star Wars land opens and up. And that's why they can't do that. And I think that that's what people need to realize. You're going to have your opportunity to do that. But it's not necessarily going to be at the George Lucas Museum, which is what they're calling it. It's not the Star Wars Museum. It is the George Lucas Museum. So let's keep that in mind. And the second that George Lucas sold his film rights stuff to Disney, Disney's like, this is ours. Now you can't have it. So basically, George Lucas, you're going to be walking into this thing and you're going to, people are going to be saying, so you're here to see the Darth Vader helmet? Actually, no. Point me to where the Rockwells are. I'd like to go see those, please. Yeah, so you just have a giant scene like from Ferris Bueller where they're in the museum just staring at stuff. You have that like kind of jazzy, you know, uh, low music playing in the background. I'm just waiting for that hybrid of R2-D2 and the Campbell's soup can kind of thing (laughs) together, you know, somewhere in there. That's got to happen, right? You know, best of both worlds. Yeah, or just like a Jackson Pollock paint of all the little uh, younglings' blood from the prequels that when Anakin killed them all. I was actually thinking the uh, the hallway scene in, in Rogue One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when he's coming down the corridor and icing people all over the place. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm excited about this, man. I want to go to it. You know, it's, it's just one of these things when you look at it, it's going to be pretty amazing when this thing is built and what it looks like. And, you know, probably, I'm not proud I can go first day. I'm going to probably try. No. no. But, <laughs> but, but, I mean, you know – Overall, I, I love museums. I love looking at. I mean, just when we were in DC for Awesome Con, we had all the old school comics and just the old things we saw that they brought to the convention there. And it's just mesmerizing, man. You know, it's like being transported to another world. You know, and it's. I'm very excited about this. I mean, I'm a, I'm a history buff and a history nerd anyway, and and also you know when you, anytime you can get some culture like that, it's cool. Plus. Not only that, I mean, you have to respect George Lucas. Say what you want about the prequels. I mean, we know we know what George Lucas has done for our nerd culture. And this is kind of your chance to not just be 
in the Star Wars mindset, you kind of get to see how he lives and what his personality is really like and stuff that he enjoyed and stuff that maybe influenced him to build the worlds that he built. And to me, that's like a walking, living autobiography. You get to see all of these things that he holds dear and that he's collected over the years, and it kind of gives you an idea of who the man really is. You know what I mean? But here's the big thing is that Disney paid – billions of dollars for star wars and george lucas just turn around just saying thanks for the new uh storage space disney i appreciate yeah. it yeah basically so it's thank like you it's like it's, it's kind of like when you have rich parents and they pay they put the down payment they pay the, your rent on your new loft apartment in like new york city or something like that could you imagine a my super sweet 16 episode with george lucas <laughs> <laughs> Super sweet seventy, just <laughs> it's just it's it's just Bob Iger just giving him a check for like billions of dollars, pretty much, and that's it. I said I wanted a Death Star cake, a Death Star cake. This is friggin' Endor. <laughs> this is bullshit. You take that back. I told you I wanted the the, the limited edition silver Tie Fighter, not the black one. You assholes! You ruined my birthday. My life is over. The whole museum sucks now. <laughs> my life is a lie. I'm embarrassed. You embarrass me in front of all my friends. Steven Spielberg's here. You embarrass me in front of fucking Spielberg. <laughs> Fuck you. And he just storms out. I'm just picturing him wearing a tiara too and just storming out. He's got a little sash on as well. Like he's his birthday boy. And when he storms out of a room, of course, you hear, Don, Don, Don. <laughs> <laughs> they're like droid, they're serving drinks and stuff like that. Oh, fucking A. <laughs> but yeah, it should be a good time. Yeah. Well, speaking of a good time, I'm about to have a good time with Aubrey Citizen, of course, is the writer for IDW's G.I. Joe series. He's come up next in the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Dexter Darden from the Maze Runner series, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it is a new era for the crown jewel of the Hasbro universe. Yep, G.I. Joe got a brand new series out after Revolution, and we're talking to the man himself. The man at the writing helm, it's Aubrey Sitterson. Aubrey, what's going on, man? Hey, boys. Welcome. Uh, welcome. I'm welcoming you to your show. <laughs> welcome. I, uh, it's a first I, for I, us. I do a couple I do a couple podcasts myself, so normally when I'm talking to people, I'm welcoming them to my show. I'm welcoming them to Straight Shoot, where I talk about wrestling. I apologize. We're off to a, we're off to a great start already. I welcome love to the other side, Aubrey. Welcome, welcome, <laughs> welcome me to your show. It was a command. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, no, guys. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to I'm, – I'm always stoked – for a chance to yammer about what we're doing on GI Joe, because I'm really proud of it, and so far the reception has been great. And I'm, you know, I'm a little, I'm not surprised. So this might sound arrogant, but I'm not surprised that people are loving what we're doing because I'm, I read it before y'all did, and I know how good it is, and I know, yeah, how, right, exactly. How, how, <laughs> what amazing work that the entire team, uh, Yanni, Lovern, Chris, Carlos, everybody involved from top to bottom is doing great work. But what I am kind of a little blown away by is how quickly people have gotten on board uh, because I thought we were going to need, I thought we were going to need some time to kind of. It's been a while since we had a ongoing GI Joe series in the IDW continuity, right? putting aside the Larry the Larry Hama series, which is still going on and is still awesome and right. bonkers and great. But it's been a while since we had one. And, you know, the movies haven't done great. Uh, so I thought we were going to need some time to rehabilitate the concept and the characters and just the name G.I. Joe in comic books. But if the early reception to both the one-shot, the Revolution one-shot and the 
new number one or any indication, we're there already, which is really exciting for me. And, you know, what, what makes the, thing, the whole revolution exciting, Aubrey, as well, is you had, I think, some of the best, best uh, antagonists in the revolution, which were the Dire Race. And even in G.I. Joe, the first issue, we kind of see a little scanner involving the Dire Race as well. So I got to ask you this. Uh, as the series moves forward, what are the chances that we see some characteristics of John Carpenter's The Thing in this whole G.I. Joe series, where this, you have this team that's together and, you know, they're, they're scanning people and it's kind of inconsistent, so what's the kind of chance we kind of see a little bit of uh, The Thing involved in all this? So, first of all, John Carpenter comparisons hit me right where I live, especially The Thing, and uh, at the risk of, again, sounding arrogant, I think you've already seen some of them, man, in that Revolution one-shot. You know, it's the... The tag, the title of that issue was DTA, which not everybody got. But I know you, you guys are wrestling fans, so I'm totally. sure you will appreciate. Mm -hmm. Don't trust anybody. It used to be on Stone Cold Steve Austin's uh, vest that he wore out to the ring. So no, man, that's that's a big part of things is learning how to trust each other in the wake of you know an invasion of the body snatchers type situation where they don't like as evidenced in the very first issue of the new ongoing, they don't have a reliable way to detect to detect dire rates and figure out who is who uh especially after the total you know mind-blowing revelation that both joe colton and wild bill were dire had been dire rates for mm -hmm. they don't even know how long so absolutely uh, that's something we're gonna be leaning on moving forward and that's there was something that was important to me too that it's it's a difficult balancing act and it's something that i am intimately familiar with from my time spent as an editor at marvel which is this you know you want to benefit from continuity and being part of a shared universe but you don't want it to become a situation where you're it's it feels like required reading or it feels like the book you're reading is in service of these other books so it's a delicate line that we're trying to walk in terms of honoring the stuff that's established and what's happened to these characters in the revolution series right we don't want to ignore any of that but at the same time we want to make sure that the new gi joe ongoing is something that is open and you know, easy to open to new readers and easy for them to digest. So, uh, absolutely. So, absolutely, dire rates are going to be a big part of it moving forward. But also other stuff, and and hoping that the dire rates will be, you know, it, it'll serve to increase the depth and the complexity of the story without making it impenetrable. That's the goal, at least. Totally. I mean, you mentioned that and how that whole situation with the dire rates really kind of messed the team up, especially with rock and roll. I mean, he had a very tough moment in that one shot with Grand Slam and G.I. Joe Revolution. And we kind of see that carry over into this first issue as well. Not only that, but it seems like rock has his old weaponry just isn't cutting it anymore. So how is he kind of dealing with not only the small fracture in the team dynamic, but also possibly the life he loves changing and maybe even passing him by? Not well, <laughs> to, to put it simply. No, that was a, you know, that's something that I, we didn't do lightly. So, uh, spoiler alert, right? Like, if, if you haven't read it, we're going we're gonna to talk about the specifics. G.I. Joe, or uh, Rock and Roll, thought that Grand Slam was a dire wraith. And they had a really tense moment with them standing off, gun, and they both thought the other one was a dire wraith. And Rock and Roll pulled the trigger. He pulled the trigger on Grand Slam because it looked like Grand Slam was going to pull the trigger on him. Right. And he made a tough call in a tense situation. And then he hoped that Grand Slam, like Wild Bill, who he had previously dispatched, was a dire wraith. And he turned out not to be. And that was not done lightly. I, I got the day that came out, I got angry. I got my first angry comic book fan emails, which Ooh. I was thrilled. Yeah, I know. Really exciting. And they were really upset that, you know, we had we had 
ruin in their in their in their eyes that we had ruined two characters, right? And so that person assumed that Grand Slam was dead. We find out in issue one he's not dead, though he is paralyzed. He is in a very cool high tech wheelchair, and rock and, and rock and roll. You know, I don't see something I've always believed. You know, when you look at compelling stories, especially serialized stories, writers, good writers, they're they're tough on the characters they love because they know that's what makes them interesting, right? Mm-hmm. I think the clearest example of that is Daredevil, right? You would think that everybody who who was any good who wrote Daredevil, right? Whether it's Frank Miller or uh, Brian Bendis or Ed Brubaker or Mark Wade, you would think that they hated Matt Murdock, but they don't. Right. They love Matt right. Murdock, and they realize that what makes that character interesting and what makes people get behind him, again, wrestling reference, right? What makes you get behind the hero in a wrestling match is seeing them get the crap beaten out of them by the villain because you want to see them come back. So, you know, this is this is a this is a defi- this is going to be a defining aspect of rock and roll's character and it's something i'm really excited about because rock and roll despite being part of that first wave i want to say 1982 i hope you know get at me on twitter at aubrey citizen if i got that wrong 1982 line of gi joe toys rock and roll was like the original machine gunner but despite that fact he's never really been fleshed out that much beyond the fact that you know he lives by the beach he's got a beard and he lifts weights and shoots a machine gun that's it i'm really excited about the opportunity to really dig in and add some depth and complexity to that character and his experiences and his guilt and his regret related to that key scene in the revolution one shot would be a huge part of that massive moving forward and you, you were talking about rock and roll and i think also what you add in this especially the first issue aubrey is that kind of sense of of humor you know that, that awkward humor between uh, Skywarp and Rock and Roll, because there's a scene between them two, and they have an awkward conversation that involves Rock's need of a ride. So what does Skywarp bring to the team that other Transformers might not bring to a book like G.I. Joe? Skywarp is our Vegeta character. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> so that's a Dragon Ball Z reference. And so hopefully, you know, if you get that reference, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't get that reference, you need to go watch Dragon Ball Z because it's one of the greatest action cartoons, if not the greatest action cartoon of all time. But what I mean by that is Skywarp is a barely, if at all, reformed villain. In fact, you know what? He's not even reformed. He's a guy who is still, as always, acting in his own self-interest. It just so happens that right now, acting in his own self-interest lines up with the interests of G.I. Joe. He's there to get repaired. He he lost his... uh, events that I won't get into because they are, you know, they're going back years. But he had lost his ability to teleport, which is one of the defining features of Skywarp. And another defining feature of Skywarp is this, <laughs> and most of the Seekers, honestly, secret for, for people who aren't Transformer diehards, the Seekers are the Jets, right? Like Starscream and Thundercracker and yep. Skywarp, of course. One of their defining features is they're disloyal. <laughs> they switch sides and they betray people. That's and they're putting it jerks. mildly. Yeah, yeah, they're awful, and that's kind of what's great about them. And you know, I wanted, uh, I'll, I won't, I won't lie to you. Skywarp wasn't my first choice. My first choice was was Starscream because we he's figured. my favorite. We figured, yeah, yeah. yeah. he was. And he was my favorite growing up because the voice and like how mean he was, and yeah. he was just a jerk. And I love that he would just go out on his own and betray uh, Megatron. I thought it was great. And of course, you know, they have Starscream is everybody's favorite character because he's the best. So they have big plans for him. They say you can't use Starscream, but Skywarp is actually he might fit a little bit better because there is this 
aspect of him being broken, and he was already in the control of the Earth Defense Command. So moving forward, Skywarp is one of the things that I'm most excited about. Uh, first of all, because it's something different for the, for the team. They've never had a giant robot on the team before. Like, that's never been a thing. And the other thing I'm really excited about is that Vegeta dynamic, right? And so getting back to the Dragon Ball Z thing, one of the coolest things about – and it wasn't just Vegeta. Either. I think Vegeta is probably the best example, but they did the same thing with Piccolo. They did the same yeah. thing with Majin Buu. They did it with yeah. all of them, right? With every villain that Android faced, 18. Of course. Every villain that they faced in Dragon Ball Z eventually became a good guy, practically. And they were at their most interesting when they were – crusty mean irritable jerks and because that's that's what created that inner team conflict and created these interesting scenes so yeah man that's 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 one of the, another one of the things i'm really really excited about is getting to play with skywarp in the situation where he doesn't really fit in and i think a lot of some some longtime gi joe fans blanched at the idea of a transformer being on the gi joe team because they they worried that oh, it's just going to become another Transformers book mm-hmm. because Transformers right. is you know it's the it's the more successful property you know those Michael Bay movies are massive and that stuff trickles down that's why there are three Transformers books right and only one GI Joe book for now but the, um, <laughs> there I, you go I pitch I pitch IDW weekly on what the second and third GI Joe books are going to be but um <laughs> <laughs> the, you know so they were worried that it was going to become a Transformer book but. I try to reassure them that, you know, I think that's evident in the first issue is no, you know, what's interesting is that Skywarp is the fish out of the water. Skywarp is the one that doesn't belong here. And that's what's going to color all of his interactions. Just simple stuff with seeing him, you know, it's it's funny and it's, it creates some difficulties for Yanni, I'm sure. And we've chit-chatted about it a little bit. And I try and write the scripts in such a way that <laughs> we don't make it more difficult than it already is. But just like the sense of scale. Of like having a panel with both a giant robot and like a normal sized human being in it right. is really difficult, but it can be mined for humor. It can and it can be mined for really interesting scenes that play up this huge disparity. Absolutely. We're talking to writer Aubrey Sitterson, of course, of G.I. Joe. First issue is out right now. Second issue is going to be coming out on January the 25th. Now, Aubrey, I got to tell you, as a G.I. Joe fan, I love that you chose to use the dreadnoughts in the story and the familiar but fresh direction you actually looks like you're taking them. So are we going to see kind of Zartan Master of Disguise here or are we seeing more of the Messiah cult leader thing? Well, as of issue one, you know, we, we haven't seen Zartan and uh Leading the Dreadnoughts is, as you mentioned, Crystal Ball, who we're really leaning into. So I'll tell you a funny story about Crystal Ball, too. I was in the editorial creative retreat for Revolution, right, where all the writers came and we talked about what was going to happen in Revolution and also our plans coming out of it and, you know, laying groundwork for the future and what was going to be coming in even the second year of stories that we had planned. It was really exciting. And I can't say anything about anything, unfortunately, but I can tell you this. I was I was I was explaining my first, you know, four or five issues of G.I. Joe and said that, you know, the Dreadnoughts are going to be a big part of it. But now instead of, you know, following Zartan, they're going to be following Crystal Ball, who I love, like the new IDW Crystal Ball as compared to the old one, because and this is me talking in the room. I was like, you know, he's got the Charles Manson thing going on. He's like dirty and long hair and like weird and mystical. And he's a cult leader. It's great. And they and I think Chris Ryle stopped me. He was like, Aubrey, I think that that he's he didn't say I think he's like, Aubrey, that's actually uh, he's supposed to be Alan Moore. I was like, oh, well, he's going to be Charles Manson moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> I like that better. I think that's more. I love Alan Moore, but I don't know. I, I think Charles Manson in that role is maybe a, a little bit more fitting. Uh, so, no, it's for now. Absolutely. Crystal Ball is at the head. He's become the 
the cult leader to this this group of, if I may, kind of dopey bikers. That's cool uh, because big, I thought eventually groups. you just bring in Zartan, but the fact that you're not going to do that, I like that even more now. Well, I mean, and this is a this is sort of the push and pull of building off of a pre-existing universe. So I think a lot a lot of people were confused about this when we were starting up about whether, you know, what what counts? What of those 8,000 pages? I know there's 8,000 of them because I read all of them. What of those 8,000 <laughs> pages of IDW GI Joe count? And the answer is all of them. All of that stuff happened. All of mm-hmm. that stuff is is real, not an imaginary story. Where this isn't this isn't crisis on infinite Hasbro universes, right? We didn't pick and choose. Everything still happened, and one of the and that includes things like character deaths, which is why I'm not touching Chuckles. I'm not touching Jinx. They had really meaningful deaths in the Mike Costa run of those books, which I loved, and I wouldn't I. I don't want to disregard that, and I don't even want to disrespect it by like trying to bring them back in some wacky way. Similarly, Zartan has an established uh, personality and backstory and set of abilities, which are a little bit different than what fans of the classic Zartan might be familiar with. So it didn't really feel it didn't really feel right to bring Zartan in in this situation. Uh, so I'm excited about it because it's given me a chance to kind of reposition both the Dreadnoughts as well as Crystal Ball as something something new and something I think is really cool and something we haven't really seen from the Dreadnoughts before is really leaning into the fact that they're these they're they're outlaws in every sense of the word and that that follows through to you know fallen under the sway of this weird cult leader. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, when you're dealing with a book like G.I. Joe, you have names like Rock and Roll, Quick Kick, and Roadblock. So, Aubrey, if you were a Joe, what would your name be, and which name wouldn't you want? Oh, man. Uh, do I have to pick an established one? Oh, God, or, no. No. Or just, this a, is... just a, oh, okay. Oh, man, you're putting me on the spot. My name would be, oh, uh, Clang and Bang. Clang and Bang. <laughs> right? like, excellent like hulk hogan and brutus the beefcake bar- barber clanging and banging baby clang and, bang, <laughs> and it would be like rock and rolls too it would be clang apostrophe n bang yeah clang and bang. there we go <laughs> that would be mine uh and what what one would i not want i mean i don't know um um fuck boy Fuck boy, fuck boy, probably fuck boy's probably at the bottom of my list. Yeah, I would I think that 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 would probably be quite near the bottom. You know? I mean, really, the answer is anything but clang and bang. <laughs> is the is the nick is the is the call name that I wouldn't want. <laughs> That's a good point. I like that. I think that that makes perfect sense. As a matter of fact. We were talking to Brandon Easton, who, of course, I'm sure was in the I room with you. We were talking about uh, when we were talking about Revolution not too long ago, and we were talking about Mask. And he said that he was watching the old Mask animated series from the '80s, and he says he was embarrassed, and it just doesn't stand the test of time anymore. So, I gotta ask, man, and I think we all know the answer, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Do you feel like the GI Joe animated series from the '80s still stands the test of time? Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm actually in the midst of a rewatch right now because. For me, and this is something that sets RGI Joe apart, Yanni and I are the youngest, or the youngest isn't the right word, the latest born team to ever work on a GI Joe ongoing series. I'm not saying that as bragging because it's just you know, it's the nature of time; it moves forward, right? But 
the reason I bring it up is that we're the also the first team that is less influenced by the Larry Hama, the amazing mm-hmm. Larry Hama, real American hero stuff at Marvel, and more influenced by the Sunbow cartoon series. And the reason behind that is we're just too young for it, for the Hama series when it came out. And then because it was licensed stuff, it was never really collected all that well until recently. And I've since read it, and that stuff is great, and it that holds up phenomenally way better than most comics like the vast majority of comics from the 80s but still for me my defining gi joe experiences were watching the cartoon and just as importantly playing with the toys and playing with the toys that i had right so my perception of gi joe and i think a lot of people who come at gi joe from the generation that yanni and i do our perception of gi joe is a little bit different and it's very much informing the series thus far, right? That's why you're seeing things. It's one of the reasons you're seeing things like the return of lasers and lots of big wacky sci-fi stuff, right? In the in the Revolution one shot, they get shot out of a submarine <laughs> through like torpedo holes, <laughs> which is a total Sunbow thing. It's yeah. impossible. It's absurd, right? So no, I I've been watching the Sunbow cartoon, and so here's the thing: a couple caveats. One is it's for children. It's not for us, right? right? So you have to you have to adjust your scale, right? And it's not for children in the way that I don't know, like whatever kid series people love to rave about, like Airbender or something, right? Like it's not it's not for children the way that Airbender is for children, right? Because Airbender is also for adults and you know young like teenagers and stuff. The GI Joe show was unabashedly for children and only for children. Yeah, it's also dated. It's also from thirty some years ago, right? So it's a it. There are things that seem a little rough, right? And the animation isn't always the best, but there are certain things about it that I think mean they allow it to stand the test of time, and they and they they do carry over. And one of those is the pacing and the amount of plot packed into every single episode. And it and not only is it just plot and stuff happening constantly, but it's big set pieces, right? If GI Joe is storming a Cobra base, it's not just some building; it's a temple with giant snake statues that also come to life and then vines jump out and then the fatal fl- fluffies show up and like it's it's insane <laughs> it's crazy and it's it really nails home for you when you watch the previously on things right because you know they had like 20 some minutes right they had to introduce a dozen new gi joes and three new vehicles every week because they had toys to sell yep. and there was so much plot that the first three minutes are just previously on G.I. Joe. This happened and this happened and Scarlet did this and then Duke did that and Snake Eye showed up and then he lo- he got lost and then he found a wolf and then he found that guy and Spirit fought Storm Shadow. And like just <laughs> eight million things happen and it dives right in and more. So that's a big part of what we're actually trying to approximate with the new ongoing is finding a way to take what works so well about the cartoon series, which to my mind are a few things. It's the plot. It's the big visual set pieces. And it's something it's something it's the sci-fi. And then maybe most important of all is something I think gets lost in the concept far too frequently is the idea that these, you know, people look at GI Joe as a military book and I guess it is ostensibly, but I wouldn't categorize GI Joe, the concept as you know the military genre and part of that is because gi joe to my mind isn't about the horrors of war it isn't about the sacrifices that people make that soldiers make it's about people who genuinely like each other people from diverse backgrounds ethnicities genders coming together having fun and working together to accomplish a goal and that always comes through in the cartoon 
and it comes through because they make jokes and they laugh and they have a good time and they razz each other when it's when it's appropriate and so that's why you know i took pains to make sure that you know to my mind the gi joe team they're in their 20s you know they're in their they're young people in their 20s and they're healthy and they're good looking and they're good at their jobs why wouldn't they be laughing and making right. jokes and having fun Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned Yanni and just the work that he's been doing as well in the book and in terms of the art. And, of course, people who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Giannis Milanianis, who is the artist on the series. It's and he, spelled Giannis Milanianis, but you say it Yanni, like the, yeah. uh, the 90s. But, was but, he a but, singer? But, what was no, it? he was like a he was like a wind, like a wooden pipe player. Like he's a guy. Yanni was a guy. Like in the nineties, you go into like a masseuse parlor and you hear his music. Like, his music is like somewhere below like elevator music. In a sense. I just realized that I don't know the difference between Yanni or Kenny G. I have no idea. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I can tell you right now, all it is is a mustache. That's basically it. it. The ability to grow facial hair is the only difference. I have no idea. And I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to look it up. Don't, don't send me the difference. I don't want to learn. I'm tweeting you nothing but that now, actually. No, I'm blocked. But, you know, his art style is a very rugged and has kind of rough around the edges look to it. So what is about Yanni's art that works well, not only with, the franchise you're working with, but also the story you're trying to tell. So I'm really glad you asked that. I Early on, so I can't take credit for casting Yanni on this book. I'd love to, but all that credit should go to Carlos Guzman, our, our editor on the book. Early on, so I was on the book before Yanni was, and Carlos and I were having a chat about like what the art should look like. And I gave him the most vague, unhelpful <laughs> directions to go in. <laughs> I said, listen, we need to plant our flag in the ground, and we need to show visually – that this is not the G.I. Joe that people are accustomed to. It needs to look different. It needs to look fresh. It needs to be cool. G.I. Joe needs to be the cool book, right? And the reason that is is because for so long, G.I. Joe, you know, it's it's kind of – as a brand, it's kind of fallen – it kind of fallen into disrepair. And I knew that if we came in and just had, you know, a, a good artist, right? If we just had somebody who was a, a journeyman, solid performer come in and do it, it wouldn't get the attention that it needs. And I could write it however I wanted. But I'm of the firm belief that more than half of a comic book is the art. Mm-hmm. More than half. And, and my reasoning for that is simple. It's the fact that I would rather read a bad story with great art than the opposite, right? And, of course, you know, for something truly transcendent, you need good everything. But the art's incredibly important. You can't overstate the importance of an art in a comic book. And it feels stupid saying that, but I think some people still don't get that. So that's why I, I always repeat it. But, I, I t- you know, I gave him all this big, like, bloviating you know, unhelpful nonsense about how we need somebody cool. It needs to feel fresh and different and young. And, you know, it needs to be the type of things that, you know, the Tumblr crowd and the Twitter crowd are going to get behind, right? Because we need to rehabilitate this book and show these people that it's not just a toy cash in book. I think that's what people think about it. You know, that's what people think about a lot of licensed books, which is a term I have an issue with. We can talk about that later. if you. So with Yanni, Carlos came to me and said, you know, like, so he took all that unhelpful advice and he came back to me a day later and said, hey, what do you think about Yanni Milanianni? And I said, what, what are you, crazy? Of course, yes, sign him up because I'm a huge Profit fan and I loved what that guy did on Profit. I didn't even know he would be, I didn't even know that Yanni would be an option. And what he brings is, it's, it's fitting because with this brand new vision of G.I. Joe, it's very much influenced by the past, right? And trying to, approximate what we loved about the series but also contemporize it and bring it into 2017 now 
what Yanni brings to the table is something similar in terms of art styles, right? Yanni, Yanni's style is incredible because depending on which panel you look at and which part of each panel you look at, you see wholly different influences. Uh, to my mind, it, it it comes down to three big ones, right? The most obvious one, I think the one that people bring up the most most frequently is manga, right? Especially yep. um, Shiro, right? The Ghost in the Shell guy. Uh, because you, you look at the faces of some of these characters and kind of, you know, the way he'll kind of a, a abstract certain uh, facial expressions and stuff like that, or not even draw them sometimes. That's very, very manga-esque, right? And you'll see you'll see other panels too with the speed lines and, you know, him getting all Otomo with it and everything. So first is the manga, but then you look at the backgrounds of some of these things, right? And they're so hyper-detailed and not all of them, right? Because, I, because that's an aesthetic choice too, right? And it reminds me of like Belgian clear line style, like Euro comic stuff, right? Your Mobiuses, your Herges, stuff like that, right? And you know, the first panel of the first issue highlights this perfectly. You've got manga figures over top of this very Euro comics feeling background, right? It's it's a very strange thing, but he makes it work. And then combine that, take those influences and those pieces, and then he puts them in page layouts that look like they could have been done by big John Buscema. Right. Yanni's a guy who I don't know if he's actually read it, but he's definitely under the sway, under the magical spell of how to tell com how to how to draw comics the Marvel way. Right. And the and the way that he draws these the way that he leans on he emphasizes dynamism in every single panel is a very American mainstream superhero comics approach to things. It is amazing how he has taken all these disparate elements and sent like all these pre-existing disparate elements and synthesize them into something that I think is a brand new way to approach mainstream action adventure sci-fi comics, right? It's something I certainly haven't seen before, it, it, especially once you take Lovern Konzerski and put him over top of him. Lovern's our colorist. He's doing an amazing work. And what I love about what Lovern's doing is, you know, he's he's choosing his spots, but also everything he does is considered, right? And it looks considered. Uh, I think the best example is you look at some of the backgrounds on the first issue of G.I. Joe and some of the ones that I mentioned earlier, right? The the blank back, like the the blank empty backgrounds. And I know that some people, um, some comic book reviewers, they get a thing in their head, right? Like they learn, they learn a rule. They learn that, oh, you should never stack on the left or backgrounds are good. You need backgrounds. And then they just apply that rule universally, right? And the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is rules are only valuable insofar as you learn how to break them properly, right? <laughs> At least totally. I think. Totally. Of that's, that's my view on things. And Yanni's good enough to know how to break those rules, right? And so there's there are, there are spots where he stacks panels on the left. And guess what? It works because he knows what he's doing and it works for the page. Similarly, there are places where he leaves out backgrounds, not to save time and not because he's lazy, but because that's what the moment requires. And it allows Lovern to come in and do stuff that's absolutely gorgeous. I think the best example are these big, thick, chunky horizontal lines um, as well as he does concentric circles sometimes and it's an approach it's a, an approach that a lot of lesser colorists will just lean on photoshop for because it's easy you pick your two colors you hit grad you hit fill boom next panel right you move on lover doesn't do that because if he if he did do that first of all it wouldn't mesh well with yanni's art but also it wouldn't have the same considered approach right it would have felt like something somebody, somebody did automatically instead of a choice they made right right and he goes in and he 
does those grads big and chunky. And so he gets all these choices. He gets to decide how thick are these lines? What are the specific colors I'm going to use each? I'm not going to let the Photoshop algorithm handle it for me. I'm going to decide that. Are they going to be a clean cut between these lines or are they going to kind of meld into each other a little bit? There's a myriad of choices that Lovren then makes in order to highlight the drama. They're an amazing, they're an amazing tag team, Yanni and Lovren. And together, I truly do believe that they are making a comic that looks better than any other on the rack right now, uh, but also is aesthetically something brand new and something that we haven't seen before used to tell this type of story. It's an entirely new approach to action-adventure sci-fi comics. The crown jewel of the Hasbro universe, for crying out loud, boys. That's right, and that's why we love what you're doing with it, bringing it back to the prominence that it's supposed to be. As a matter of fact, you can get G.I. Joe Issue 1 available right now. Go to your local comic book shops, also idwpublishing.com. Issue 2, you don't have to wait long, going to be out on January the 25th. Aubrey Sitterson, writer for G.I. Joe. Man, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your passion with the book for us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I hope you'll have me back once you've seen a little bit more of what we got planned uh, for the men and women of G.I. Joe. You know, James, I feel if I was part of G.I. Joe, I'd have a little bit of problem holding all those big guns. Yeah, I think you would. I mean, you could always try to do, you know, how every every action movie has that badass, you know, ripped arm dude that's got the giant gun in one <laughs> arm, and he's always going, ah! In this case, you'd be doing that because your arm's crashing to the ground over the weight of this giant <laughs> my shotgun. My are ripping off my biceps! <laughs> Nobody's ever needed a sawed-off more. And you do. Sorry, frankly. Most of the time you're screaming like that, like, ah, oh, they're firing the gun, they're they're like about to die, so thanks, asshole. Well, the reason is, is because you're shooting yourself in the kidney, because it's hanging down halfway on your body, and people don't know you're pumping lead into your own kidney. No, no you're just like, there's like a, like a huge recoil on Nick, why are you crying? It's hitting me in the fucking dick! <laughs> and now my balls are gone. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, and three. Okay. <laughs> but no, man, it was great talking to Aubrey. Of course, G.I. Joe, is, it's a wonderful series. This whole Hasbro Revolution universe has been just great, man. It's just it's just great. You gotta go get it. Go get issue one. Get issue two comes out the 25th of this month. Be sure to go get it. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Aubrey Sirison, IAW, just fantastic work that they're doing over there. If you want to hit us up on Facebook, hit us up, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downnerdy757. I'm at Merck with one arm. The one is spelled out. Same thing for my Instagram, so go follow me there as well. James, where can I find you? I'm at James Ace with them. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. But, hey, you can find all this information in one spot. It's a downandnerdypodcast.com. I mean, you can even subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, whatever your thing is. You can do that on there. You want to find out what's going on this week's show? You want to buy G.I. Joe for your Amazon Kindle? You can do that on our This Week section. Find out everything that's going on. Read our other comic book reviews because we've got more at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, press safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.